Hey, welcome to the Manmukti Podcast, Stories of Stigma, where we speak about South Asian mental health with professionals and those with lived experiences of mental illness. Today we're speaking with John Ning, who will tell us a bit about what it's like to be a counselor for South Asian students and others at the University of Maryland. Thanks for being here, John Ning. Thank you for having me. So I know that you are a licensed counseling psychologist and you work at the Counseling Center at the University of Maryland, but I think it'd be useful for our audience and for me to know a little bit more about what it actually means to be a licensed counseling psychologist as opposed to another type of psychologist or a therapist and just what the differences are. So there's different types of psychologists. There are applied psychologists that do research and practice when we think of therapy. And then there's psychologists that do more consultation and some that do more research. So when we think of clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, school psychologists, these are all practicing psychologists that can also do different forms of therapy. The word therapist is actually a pretty broad umbrella term. And so within that, there are different kinds of degrees and types of training that people can use to show practice therapy. So for example, some folks will get a master's in general counseling and they can still practice therapy. And that's about a couple years of training with supervision. There is also social work degree where you can practice. That's also a master's degree where there's also a considerable amount of supervision um, and a couple years of training. And then with a psychologist, this is sort of a, a term that you need to be licensed to have when you're practicing in many states. And so for a psychologist, you do have to have a doctorate. And so degree-wise, in terms of training, that looks like either a PhD or a PsyD. So for me, being a counseling psychologist, I've gotten my background with a PhD in psychology, specifically counseling psychology. And so as a scientist practitioner, I do both research as well as practicing in terms of therapy. The other major difference is that there are certain kinds of assessments sometimes people need, whether if you think about like for kids, sometimes with ADHD or adults or other sort of learning and development sort of things. And there's a lot of assessments that only psychologists are technically trained to do as well. So when you, if ever folks are looking around for a therapist, you'll see that they usually have some sort of uh, letters after their name that signify what kind of degree and training they have. And I think sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, but there is a lot of overlap and all of us are trained to do therapy in general. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So... But it sounds like the psych, those who are trained in like an actual psychology background with PhD or PsyD, like you said, are more able to make sort of diagnoses or things like that as opposed to just doing the actual conversational therapy. Some of the uh, heavy assessments. And so in terms of diagnosing, the other ther- like all therapists will be able to do that as well. It gets a little bit nitty-gritty and confusing with that sense, and it usually... And this is not true for everybody, but folks that tend to have a PhD, the type of training is also very focused on being able to do research and consume research and create research as well as a practice. That's also another, I think, bigger difference. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In regards to that, what are some of the things you're doing right now in uh, in research apart from the counseling work that you do? So my research area that I really love is looking at domestic violence and relationship violence stuff in general. I really enjoy looking within the South Asian community 
and trying to think about what are the factors that affect the way we think about relationships, the way we think about violence. And so, for example, I have a project that has worked with college students, um, and we talked about things like sexism um, and different things that we did a survey on, trying to see, like, what are things where if we can talk about this stuff with our people, then how can we then positively and prevent relationship violence and have the community destigmatize it, talk about it more, those sorts of things. I also really like training within the, the field and thinking about that and thinking about how we supervise the next generation and thinking about things like diversity issues in general and how to train the next generation and ourselves as we continue learning always. So those are a couple of big things that I look at in terms of research. And I pretty sure over the years that will change and grow into different things too. Great. It's it's refreshing to hear that you know, part of your research is seeing how the effect of, you know, just talking to people about these violence issues and seeing how that kind of helps improve like their, their the way of like dealing with it. I think it's, you know, it's similar in a lot of senses to what we're trying to do with Len Mukti, right? Is just get people to start talking about these things in, in order to reduce the stigma and see um, how we might be able to better help the community in that way. You know, along those lines, I, I'm also wondering how it is that you got interested in mental health work in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I have sort of a funny story with that. I remember even in high school and I kept thinking, like, what do I want to be? What do I want to do in college? And it was a pretty strong expectation in the family that I would just go to college next. So that was sort of already decided. And I think I liked a lot of my subjects, but I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Um, I think part of me was a little bit rebellious, and I was like, I'm not going to do the stereotypical things that we think of a lot of South Asian folks doing. So I was like, maybe I want to try something different. Okay. Um, a different type of doctor. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I thought, well, I really, I really want to be able to help people. I didn't think – I don't think at that age I knew what it meant, but I thought, okay, I think being a shrink would be really cool, and I could talk to people, and that would be enough to help people. And there's something about that that seemed really exciting to me. And then when I got to college and I was doing psychology, I still don't know that I knew exactly what that meant. I would say my spark really came when I was in classes and I could start to learn things that I could then see out in the real world. So not like – for y'all that are in college, not your basic psych 101, for me, it was really the more intense classes where I could learn things, go outside, and then see it happen with my friends and with my families and with people in general. That was really fun for me. Okay. Um, in terms of mental health specifically, like beyond just psychology, for me, it was I was really lucky in my undergrad. I took a domestic violence class with a professor at the university. And that's what really hooked me in, I think, really learning more about that. And I got to intern at a domestic violence shelter. I mean, that really sparked a passion for me in the field of domestic violence. And then I worked there before going to grad school. And I was lucky that my professor, Dr. Karen O'Brien, became sort of my mentor. And I just really felt a strong passion of wanting to work in to prevent trauma, but also to be able to help in recovery of trauma. In terms of mental health, I think that's what really drew me in. And when I was working at shelters, I really appreciate, I think, all the grassroots efforts, all the progress we have made. And I just noticed, like, where I was, for a lot of immigrant families, there wasn't, there were so many barriers to getting resources, getting help. And when I think about my community as a South Asian woman, 
It's tough. I remember I was working on the hotline and there was a call from somebody that said, hi, I'm struggling because I have a partner that is threatening to release my pictures and there are explicit pictures, but I want to break up, but then he won't let me and my parents don't know about our relationship. And she said, oh, what is your name? Oh, Chani, you're Indian. You know how this goes. You know what's going to happen if this happens, right? And it just, I felt so helpless. And so these sorts of stories, when you hear them, and I'm like, okay, I really want to be able to do something more. So that's kind of what drew me in to mental health in general. Okay. I mean, thank you for doing what you do. I think it's great that you were able to, like, find this path and able to help people this way. So let's talk a bit about Mm -hmm. what you are doing in your day-to-day at the the counseling center at at U of M. Specifically, I'd be interested to know, like, what kind of cases you deal with with South Asian students in regards to mental health? Like, how do they, do you find that they come and talk to you about uh, things that they're dealing with? Like, how do they exhibit their problems differently than other students? Sure. So I'll first start with some of the similarities. I think that as South Asian community, we have a lot of overlapping concerns and things that we deal with. And so just like the other students and sort of just to give people I think an idea what it's like to be at a counseling center, we get sort of the whole range of folks that come in with different concerns. So I kind of describe it like just like you go to your medical doctor, you might go because you have the cold or you might go because you're worried about a potential tumor or a lump, right, that might feel more serious with more serious treatment needs. So very similarly in my office and in my colleagues' offices, We see people that come in that say, hey, I am having trouble adjusting. I'm feeling lonely. I have trouble with my roommate or I don't know how to manage my time and manage this whole college thing. You know, it's really hard. Then we have people that come in with depression, anxiety, eating stuff, body image stuff, low self-esteem, people that come in post-trauma, post-sexual assault, or I've had this happen my I've been dealing with something my whole life, but now finally I have the resources to connect to some professional help. We have people that come in with career issues, um, not knowing what to do or I thought I knew, but I can't. And then people that come in that have pretty um, intense stuff and we're worried like, okay, is this going to be a psychotic break or are you managing suicide thoughts? And we need to sit with that and figure out how to treat some of that stuff too. So it kind of runs the range. When I think about my South Asian clients, whether it's here at my current job or previous institutions I've been at in terms of other universities, I would say that my South Asian students come in with very similar sort of overall concerns. I think what's unique is some of the community-specific aspects that make it all complex. So, for example, students that come in maybe with some more family conflict or related to some depression, anxiety, I think a lot of my students, regardless of their background, might have trouble with family and say, you know, my family doesn't really get it. And when I sit with my South Asian students, I think they talk about the same things, but it comes across a little bit differently. And you hear a lot of our culture-specific stuff. I think students that sit across from me, sometimes it's hard because it's kind of scary to sit across from someone in the community. I'm like, oh, are you going to shame me or judge me in a way that I felt from the community before? Or on the flip side, it can be helpful. Some people like to be able to use words from their languages that I can understand as well. And I think with, let's say, family is a big part of what we talk about. I think messages about things like identity, gender, 
queer students might, you know, have heard very conservative, anti-queer messages growing up. And again, these aren't things that are specific only to South Asian families or students, but I think sometimes it manifests or presents differently. Sometimes we hear more psychosomatic symptoms of I'm tired, I can't get out of bed, I'm getting headaches, you know, those sorts of things. So there's some overlap, but there's some very definite specific differences. A lot of even graduate students that'll come in will also talk about sort of life phases and managing uh, relationship differences or pressures from family as they're talking about trying to balance their family roles and their school roles. I think for some students figuring out, okay, now I'm away from home, especially if they're living away from home for the first time and trying to manage expectations from peers and what feels more of a mainstream white American culture feels sometimes really different and contrasting to what they grew up in and trying to figure out how to navigate that. We also get students that come in for substance use all the time, or maybe they don't realize how much they're drinking or smoking is really negatively impacting them. So like I said, with the South Asian students, I don't know necessarily that the concern are so different, but I do think that there are specific factors for South Asian students that are really helpful to talk through that just sort of exacerbates things, just like other communities have other culture-specific things. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think you gave us like so much useful information just now. So I want to <laughs> kind of break down a few things that I found interesting and ask you a bit mm-hmm. more about them. First of all, I want to ask, I think for everyone's benefit, what it's like to even go to a college counseling center and like what it looks like physically and logistically, right? So I, I am, I'm in graduate school right now and I know a lot of our audience is probably people in graduate school or in undergrad. And I know sometimes the thought of, you know, using the resources at the university to try therapy for the first time or try counseling for the first time can be a little bit daunting, right? Like I will admit mm-hmm. that I wanted to reach out for, to a therapist here for the first time to, you know, just talk about the things I'm going through in life and decisions I need to make about career and stuff. And, you know, I, I had like a call set up and the day of I had like very little sleep because before I had like a late night flight or something. And, you know, yeah. the, the morning of I was just like, ah, like, I don't know. I don't really know if I want to do this. And I like ended up just like rescheduling, right? Or like canceling, postponing. Mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that was so much of the fact that I was just nervous about what it was going to be like for the first time, right? And like that, I think that's very much like the fact of the matter. So if you could tell us a bit about what it's like to go to um, therapy at a school setting for the first time and what people should look out for so that they're not nervous about it like I was. <laughs> sure. I mean, what you're talking about, I think, is totally normal. Um, I think the hardest part about all of this, I mean, the first step of just calling, making an appointment or walking in and sitting with somebody I think that's really hard. I think that's hard for most everybody, myself included. Um, I think with a college counseling center, sometimes they're in a separate unit. Sometimes they're part of the health center. To give you an idea of what to expect, I think also one thing that can be really helpful is to figure out where the physical location is and to just go walk in and look around. Um, And that doesn't even require making an appointment or knowing what you're looking for, but sometimes even just seeing a setting in person and walking in with a group of people or with a friend can just be kind of helpful to see what does it even look like and just see that, oh, it's just another building um, with some chairs, um, (laughs) right? With some magazines, usually just like a doctor's office is what you tend to see. 
And then even when you think about an office, people have different styles and you'll see their office sort of reflects that people will have some books, they might have some rocks, you might have some um, chairs or a couch that you can kind of hang out on. And so I think that just knowing that it's just like any other doctor's office, sometimes a little bit more comfortable <laughs> is nice. And like I said, I think that first time is, is hardest just to kind of start. And I'll speak for myself, too. As a therapist, I struggled the very first time I tried to make an appointment. Even recently, I was like, oh, I should probably go back. And it's it's a struggle. And I have friends that are sort of keeping me accountable. But I think if you can just take that first step and just like I think when we have other types of appointments for our health, whether it's an eye doctor or a dentist or a regular physician, the first time for any of these things, I think, are hard. So I think one thing that's helpful to remember is that as a client or a patient, you have control and power over how it's going to look. You don't have to talk about anything you don't want to. You don't have right. to share anything you don't want to. You're not expected, and this is what I tell a lot of people, is that you're not expected to, like, rip out your heart and share your life story with somebody for the when you sit with them for the first time. Okay. Oftentimes, the That's... first time you go to talk to someone, they're just going to get a general idea of what you're looking for before they make a recommendation. A lot of counseling centers are like that on college campuses where the first time you meet them, it's not necessarily a full counseling session per se, but it's just like, hey, what's going on? What are you looking for? Let's figure out what's the best fit for you. Um, okay, got it. Yeah, that's good to know. I was kind of assuming it would be a rip your heart out kind of situation. <laughs> and, like sit on a long couch and just tell, like start crying in the first meeting. I, I don't yeah. Know <laughs> when our media makes it look like that, makes it, and I think of like the picture of this a therapist sitting and you're laying down on a couch and they ask you, you know, how your mom ruined you, for example. And that's not exactly what it looks like. Um, yeah. And I do have some students that come in and they do kind of put their heart on the table in front of me the very first time. And that's what they need. But that's not necessarily expected. And okay. you usually have a lot of paperwork when you head in to an office somewhere, just like any other doctor's office. We'll ask about history and what you're coming in for and other sort of symptoms you might have. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned something else that I thought was really interesting for everyone for everyone to hear, which is you said that just as you know you go to a physical doctor's office, like a physical health doctor's office for a variety of things from the cold to assessing whether or not you might have a tumor. Similarly, with you know your counseling center, you might get people who just want to come and talk about the stress that they're having or some, something that makes them mentally unwell. But there's also those who might have something on the more extreme end of mental illness, and so. I think talking about mental health in terms of a spectrum is something that we've really been trying to push at Munlukby just mm-hmm. so that people understand that, you know, it's kind of like physical health and that you can't say that a person has, like, a person just has mental illness or not, right? There's there's always like a, a range of things that falls upon and a range of ways that people are, you know, exhibit some sort of like mental health issue, right? Um, if you could expand on that a bit like what would you tell people about knowing that this mental health issues do run on a spectrum and how they should think about approaching therapy from that lens instead of thinking that they only have to come in when something is like you know perhaps already too late in terms of affecting their well-being mm-hmm. um when i i mean i think about it as it's never too early it's never too late it's always, I mean, and I'm biased, of course, um, being in the field, but it's it's always helpful to see somebody. And I think it's a different idea to sit and talk in front of somebody that sometimes 
people in our communities that we're not used to. Even if you look at, if I think about the way I was trained, my training being in the U.S. is very U.S. culture specific. And I think a lot of us in the field are really trying to think about how do we take these tools or how do we create tools that fit our community better? And very similar as you're talking about the range of things, I think there's an idea in most communities about you go to mental health services when you have something severe and people sometimes come to us because they felt like they've tried everything and nothing has worked. Right. Now, I still think it's better to come then than not at all. Right. Um, right. But I, th I think it's great to come to before. Many of us are very strength oriented and strength based. So my goal for someone in my office is to not just fix symptoms, so to speak. My goal is to improve well-being. And so it might be that you could be okay without a therapist, but I think having a therapist can always improve things. A lot of my students that I work with, what they say is, you know, I might have been okay on my own, especially if they're coming in with something that's maybe showing fewer symptoms per se, but... They say talking to you just really helps me think through things in a way that I wouldn't know to do by myself. You learn more about yourself. You learn more about how you interact with others. You learn how to manage things in a way that sometimes is faster when you're sitting with someone and we're 50 minutes, all you get to do is focus on you. We don't have a lot of that in our life. While we talk to friends and family, which I think is absolutely necessary and great, Going to a therapist is you get to go to an outside person whose job it is just to really be there in the moment with you for 45 minutes or an hour and to really help you figure out things for you. And so when we think about the different sort of concerns you can come in with, if you're having trouble and just need to talk to someone even just once to figure something out, I think it's worth it to just try it. Especially for college students, a lot of times it's much more accessible on a college campus than it will be once you graduate. And I say that whether we think about financial costs, whether we think about even figuring out how to find a therapist, a lot of us don't know how to do it. I don't think I would know other than the fact that I have to help other people if I sort of figured it out and we learn. Right. Um, but even figuring out how to find somebody. So I feel like especially if you're a college student, even if you go and talk to someone, even if it's just that first appointment where they just sort of talk to you about what's going on and figure out what to do next, I think that's great just to try. When you think about what kind of reasons you would want to come in for, and you were mentioning, well, how can we help people come in earlier? Oftentimes, the first time people come in, I think it is when it feels like it's really far down the line, which is okay for the first time. And my hope is for folks when they do that and they get some resources that then the next time they go in earlier or you just have someone you routinely go to more often or less often. I think talking to somebody outside your life that you don't know, that's essentially a stranger in every way, yeah. it's pretty scary Absolutely. to sort of to, to tell somebody things that sometimes you haven't told anybody before. Well, what's great also about the confidentiality of counseling and legally and ethically what we're abided to do is unless there's a danger, there's a few times where we have to break confidentiality, which we talk about with all of our patients and clients, and that's if there's an emergency situation where we worry about somebody's safety or if there's some court issue. But otherwise, it's really just between me and that person, or at least the system or organization. So me and my staff here and the student. So a lot of students, like once they kind of come in for the first time, they find it really nice to be able to talk about things. And it might be like things you're supposed to be able to handle on your own. I should know how to talk to my parents about my romantic relationship. I should know how to figure out my major 
when I'm struggling between these different things. I should know how to figure out how to do college. I did high school, okay, what's the problem here? Or I'm okay, I'll just go out with my friends on the weekend and I'll have a couple drinks, I'll feel better. All of that stuff can help for a little bit. But what I tell folks is that if you're noticing there's something coming up for you that's not going away, you know, if it's been a week, a month, a couple months, the longer it sits there, the more likely it'll be helpful to talk to somebody. I don't think that therapy is necessary for every single person. I think a lot of our communities have supports and resources and things that even before this like Western model of therapy was, I was, was given to me, I think there's lots of avenues people have, whether it's spiritual avenues with religious leaders or prayer or whether it's family. And I think we have a lot of the supports. I see therapy as very complementary to all of that stuff. I just always encourage folks to try it, even if you try it with a person. I think that's great. I mean, like I said, even just that first talk, I think can be helpful. And if you're not on a college campus where you don't have access to resources to start, even trying a private practitioner, most people have like a free 15 minute consultation, whether it's over the phone, in person, and that can be helpful. Just like what you're saying, like just to get over those initial nerves of what is it going to be like to talk to someone? What do I say? Just having somebody on the phone or in person with you talking through like, hey, what's going on? Let's figure out what you might need. And then you have the power to decide whether or not to continue, just like with any other kind of health thing. If you're having trouble wanting something different and you're not sure how to do it in life, I think therapists can also be helpful in that way, whether it's adjusting to different things, a life change, a transition. And I think we get a lot of messages that we should be able to handle this on our own or our family, or our friends. We should be enough. And I think it's okay to say, hey, I need one more person on my team. You all are great. But let's just get one more person on my team to help me out. I really love the way that you're framing that. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense, you know, to think of it in terms of something that's complementary. I think oftentimes, you know, I've often probably think thought of it this way too, that it's, it has to sort of replace or it's some sort of like betterment or improvement upon the friends and family and loving support that you already have. Where That's, you know, that's not really the case. It's just a way to complement those mm-hmm things um, that, that already exist. Yeah, and help, they you know, all have different roles team. in our life. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've, I've been convinced for sure. So I'm, I'm definitely going to try again <laughs> to get that first phone call to happen. Um, I hope some of our listeners also can uh, take inspiration from what, some of what you said and maybe reach out to counselors at their college campuses or professionals that they know in the, in the area if they're not in college. But I want to end so. by mm-hmm. end by asking a bit something more specific to South Asian culture, right? So mm-hmm. specifically with the students that you get to visit with, you mentioned earlier that you know some of them they see you and they're like, okay, like is she gonna judge me like other South Asian people do, or is uh-huh, she gonna uh-huh. is she gonna be helpful? I just I'd love to hear a bit more about what that interaction is like with South Asian students. Um, specifically, you know, you you said that some of them need to use like words from like their South Asian languages to help better describe things like what what mm-hmm. is like the what's the terminology that you guys use when you're talking specifically about mental health in the South Asian context and how do you like cater the conversation to that to, to better help students? Yes and I'm so glad you brought that up um, I think this conversation would feel incomplete without talking about that Um, So when we think about our students and their greater sort of system that they're navigating in, 
I think race is a really big part to think about. Um, I think it always has been, and I think now it's even more exaggerated. Uh, maybe exaggerated is not the right word, but it's definitely more amplified, um, rightfully so. I think people are feeling it in the current sociopolitical climate. And so I think for our South Asian students particularly, for example, if they have ever experienced racism personally, they've ever experienced racism in their families, their communities, or if they're seeing it, um, whether it's through racism against South Asian folks, so there's homophobia, xenophobia against immigrants, communities, um, I think it makes a difference on one, their mental health. Um, I think it's a strain on our well-being. I think it contributes to our health disparities as a whole when you look at people of color um, and the literature on health disparities in general. And also when you look at mental health specifically, it takes a toll on us and it really wears us down. Um, and then if you add in the idea of treatment and research, or I'm sorry, resources, um, it can make folks hesitant to go to a system and ask for support or help or resources from a system that feels like it's just going to be just another system in this bigger racist community, if that makes sense. Um, and so for some folks, it might be, well, what if I'm sitting across from somebody that looks like somebody or talks or sounds like somebody that has perpetuated some of these attitudes and biases and prejudice um, and racist behaviors that are threatening for safety before. What if I have to sit across somebody like that, right? And that's kind of scary. And so it, it can become a barrier, I think, to seeking resources as well, especially if the resources are coming from systems and people that um, sometimes remind them of these communities that have been racist towards them or their families or communities, for one. Um, another thing is even when you think about the idea of the way mental health and talk therapy, for example, is portrayed, it's in a very Western model that might not fit. So even if we think from a very cultural standpoint, for some students, it fits, some of it, it doesn't. Um, right. So that's something to think about. And some of our students have multiple identities that are targeted. So if they're South Asian and have a learning disability or another kind of disability or South Asian and queer or South Asian and, and other, any sort of identity that might feel especially targeted right now um, and threatened and not safe, that that's going to both wear on their mental health and also that might create a barrier to seeking additional resources. So I think that is something important to think about. I think that's important to think about for our practitioners that could be listening and community agents that could be thinking about, okay, how do we build relationships with these communities? How do we check ourselves, myself included, in terms of biases we might have that might contribute to that? Um, our mental health field hasn't always been the nicest to people with these targeted identities um, and from minority communities or marginal, historically marginalized communities. And so I think that's something from the mental health side I think we're always continuing to work on and still have a long way to go. And I think for our community to really think about, you know, how can we navigate that in a way that is still helpful for us? So I think these are sort of some different factors that play a role for sure. Um, and I'll be honest, in terms of terminology, mental health in different languages, I'm still working on that myself. I think my students tend to use language like even just, for example, describing family relationships. I think in a lot of South Asian cultures, we stay in touch with lots of family members in what might be considered really distant members. 
And so just to be able to easily use a word in Urdu or Hindi or another language to be able to say, oh, my dad's sister's son, you know, like all these different relationships and to be able to easily talk about it. Or even to be able to talk about different concepts. I have quite a few students that have talked about, you know, as they're navigating you know, figuring out romantic partner situations, whether it's dating, whether it's arranged marriage, whether it's a combination, whether it's family stuff, and being able to talk about that process and say, oh, yeah, I know what a bio data is. <laughs> I know how this works. Um, <laughs> I know what it means when a family comes with a rishta to your house, right? So these yeah. are the things I think <laughs> it's just not having to explain it, I think feels really nice. I think, you know, thinking about that, it, it would be very difficult to explain bio data to someone <laughs> who does not know what that is. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and like now when I, and I sometimes will talk to my colleagues to kind of help them kind of get what this stuff is too, so that we all are sort of increasing our awareness about this and like non-South Asian practitioners to be able to say, yeah, like a bio data is sort of like a resume. If you think about a lot of online profiles, it's kind of like that. Um, (laughs) But I think there are practitioners that are much more well-versed in specific terminology and specific words and things we tend to use because I also work with college students that tend to be a mix of how their cultural sort of background. A lot of college students that I work with tend to be bicultural. Um, mm-hmm. So that ends up being not as, as much of my focus personally, but I think a lot of folks that work with the community, with families, with older adults, with first-generation folks, I think are much better at that than I am. Yeah, I will say, um, as it, just as we're talking about this, I, I do want to add one thing just for anybody that's listening that's thinking about this or has tried. All therapists are not equal per se. So even as we're talking about what it's like to sit across from me with another South Asian person, I've had students that identify as South Asian and then they'll say, you know, I don't want to work with someone South Asian. That just doesn't yeah. feel comfortable to me. And that's okay. I think that's totally fine. When we think about what we do in therapy and talking about all of this heavy stuff, I think the most important thing that I tell folks is that you want to be comfortable. Enough. I mean, it's sometimes uncomfortable talking, but the least uncomfortable. So just like you have other relationships in your life, you have family, you have friends, you might have romantic partners, and you're pulled more towards some people than you are other folks. And the idea with therapy is that the connection is really important. So you have to feel okay sitting across from somebody and talking eventually about some of the harder stuff, knowing that it's going to be hard. And so I always tell people to pay attention to that. So even for myself, when I think about the time in the past when I was in therapy, I sat across from somebody and it just felt like he wasn't able to get the cultural specific family stuff. And I remember the question kept coming back of, what do you want? What do you want? And I said, well, it's really hard for me to tease that out with my family and myself. And not to say that question is incorrect or not, but it felt like this person didn't get it. So if you're sitting across from a therapist and you're not really sure if this person is getting it, it's it's because we don't have x-ray machines and other tools. And I think even medical doctors probably have competency with different communities just to know to ask different questions. Similarly, we also uh, might be better working with some folks. And so if it's not a good match for you, whether because someone's not getting some of the cultural stuff or some of your identity stuff, or if it's because you just feel like the person's not getting it, you're not connecting well, you're not meshing, I think it's worth it to try and find another one and say, this isn't working out, or even telling the person that it's it's not feeling okay. And then most therapists should be able to either kind of figure out how to make it work 
or figure out whether it's not the best fit and trying to help you find someone that's a better fit. I think for a lot of South Asian folks for us or any other community that has very culture-specific needs or identity-specific needs, so even if we think about intersections of identity, so if I think about like my queer South Asian students, they want to make sure they're sitting across from someone that really gets the LGBTQ stuff and really is going to be affirming Right. And either we'll share that identity or if they don't get that the person sitting across from me is going to be at least somewhat familiar, maybe not know everything, but get that difference. So even when I think about the therapist I was talking about, I think sitting across from that therapist, he was also a white man. And I think that also made me feel less comfortable with his questions sure. than maybe if he had or a different background. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know no. if that's the question you asked, but I just felt like it's important to share. No, I think that I think that is really important for everyone to hear. Yeah, um, in terms of thinking about this as a as a connection that you're building with somebody, and you know, making sure that that's the right connection, right? I just want to say thank you, Shani, mm-hmm. for all the information. I think I feel like you've given us a lot of information, and at the same time, a lot of like motivation to um, <laughs> be comfortable with you know pursuing this in, in our lives. If it's something that we that we would like to do, it's something that we need. Like I said, I'm sold, um, so I definitely want to um, try and make another appointment and see see it through this time. So I'll I'll, I'll let you know what happens. <laughs> maybe I'll uh, good. maybe I'll actually get maybe I'll actually make it to the phone call this time. But uh, uh, again, yeah, thank you so much for telling us um, so much useful stuff today, and I really appreciate you talking to my Mukti. Thank you, and thank you so much for doing what you all are doing. It's so exciting to hear more people talking about mental health, especially in the South Asian community. And I think we, within the community, the more we talk about it, the more we do things that make sense and fit for us, I think the more it's going to help. So I'm really excited and so appreciative of all that you do. And thank you so much. It was such an honor to be asked to do this and to be part of this project. So I really, I really appreciate it. Thanks to our guest, Chandni Shah, our podcast team, of Chintan, Shama, and Anand. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and get in touch with your own thoughts, comments, or guests that you believe could help break the stigma. Visit us at manmukti.org or on social media at all things at manmukti. I'm Abhi with the Manmukti podcast, Stories of Stigma, and we'll see you next time.